आहे आय एम दीपक अँड यू लिस्निंग टू द मिनिंग क्वेश्चन अ प्लेस वेअर वी सेलिब्रेट ह्युमन पोटेन्शियल थ्रू पर्सनल स्टोरीज टॉक्स अँड कन्वर्सेशन्स ऑन मिनिंग टुडे वी हॅव विथ अस डॉक्टर क्रिस्टोफर मिलर अ प्रोफेसर ऑफ युगर स्टडीज फ्रॉम लॉस अँजलिस कॅलिफोर्निया क्रिस ॲस इज वायडली नोन चेंज इज करिअर from finance to yoga professorship in his quest for finding a new meaning in this episode we will not only hear chris's story but also understand the emerging field of yoga psychology which aims to integrate ancient eastern traditions in western paradigm welcome chris so you have moved from finance to yoga how did you do that You know, it's it's an interesting question. It's a story that uh, I've I've liked to think about more and more often recently, uh, especially as I've been talking about the meaning quotient uh, with you. And really, it was a search for meaning, my move from finance to yoga. And it came in sort of a roundabout way through my experience through surfing. Um, I'm a surfer. I'm from Southern California. Wow. And at the time, yeah, my friend, um, my friend Ryan Mills, who's a founder of of the company Yoga Glow which many people have probably heard of it's an online yoga company and I was surfing one day and he said to me in my mid 20s he said you have to try yoga man you really have to try yoga uh, and at the time I was working in accounting I was a certified public accountant and uh, I didn't really think about it much and it took me a few years to take him up on this this opportunity to practice yoga um, during my time in surfing really though what was happening was i was falling into this really deep appreciation and love for the beauty and the thrill and the interconnectedness of nature so this was something that was already sort of brewing and happening uh, before i even made my move from finance to yoga uh, it didn't really happen until later on when uh, the other founder of yoga glow my friend derek mills handed me a book by bron taylor called dark green religion uh, some people may have read this book it's a really interesting fascinating book but the main point of this book is that it says that people have these extremely profound spiritual experiences while they're out uh, doing outdoor nature activities like surfing and many of us have probably had these experiences before you don't have to be surfing you can be hiking you can be at a waterfall or you can be somewhere just really profoundly beautiful and suddenly you feel an interconnectedness that you have never felt before was it any moment from being a surfer when you decided that you have to do something different yeah so one of the most profound things that ever happened to me before yoga that really sent me on a trajectory that i didn't even know i was going on at that time was while i was surfing um one day after Uh, a huge rainstorm when i was 21 years old i was i was just i was still in college actually i went out and i surfed in these beautiful massive waves uh, down in manhattan beach but there was something very different about the beach that day that i hadn't noticed ever before because i had never surfed right after a storm like that before and what i noticed as i began to paddle out into the water is that the water smelled really awful and i had mm. never smelled it like that before i also noticed that the water looked very polluted i had never experienced water like that before and as i sat up on my board out out past the waves and for the first time kind of looked around i realized that i had just paddled through tons and tons of trash 
And it was at that moment that I had this sudden flash of, of the sudden experience where I looked around and I realized that that wasn't just trash, but that was my trash. That was all of our trash. And I was surrounded by it. And I had this moment where I realized not only was that my trash, but I remembered the times in high school when I lived inland that I actually threw that trash out my car window in high school. My friends and I used to uh, do what a lot of people do in high school. We'd have these late nights where we would go to Carl's Jr. or Jack in the Box or these fast food restaurants in the United States, terrible food. Um, but at the time, that's what we ate. And afterwards, in the middle of the night, when we'd be out hanging out, um, you know, as teenagers, we would throw our trash in the parking lot. And I had this moment while I was sitting out in the middle of the water, I was 21 years old, and I realized that that trash that was surrounding me was the trash that I had thrown in the parking lot only a few years before with my friends back in high school. And it was that experience, which is, seems so simple, but was yet so profound for me, that kind of set me on a path of asking, wanting to ask and understand about the interconnectedness between things in the world. And I very distinctly remember that when I had that experience, not only did I, did I realize that was my trash, but I also had a sudden flash of insight that when it rained back in my, my hometown, just inland in Los Angeles, that that rain ran down the mountains, ran into the storm gutters and washed all that trash out to me mm. to deliver that message to me. Wow. And, you know, when you are talking about that, I can picture two crates. So one is in tune with the nature, in tune with the body, in tune with those experiences of connection and meaning. And other who is working in finance and accounting. How did you merge these two, Chris? Yeah, that's, I, I think that's kind of a good way to think about it. I was, I was being pulled in two different directions. Um, and one day I was sitting up in my corner office and I you know I told this story at the event in Zurich overlooking the beautiful Pacific Ocean in Long Beach. And it was at that moment that I suddenly realized, you know, I had made it. I had everything I wanted. Uh, I was very privileged. I worked very hard. I had a nice car. I lived by the ocean. Uh, I had a nice place. But I realized that I, I wanted something more and that even though I had met all of those material um, uh, needs of mine that there was something uh, profound that was calling and it was calling through again through these nature experiences. Um, thinking back then to Bron Taylor's work and being really inspired by this, I decided to take a, a yoga class finally. I took my friend up on it at Yoga Glow in my late 20s. And this really marked the beginning of my plunge into yoga uh, and, and what, what began as uh, me eventually moving from finance to yoga because at the same time I became very interested through these uh, practices to know more about them and so as you know in California where I'm from and where I was where I was working there are so many ways you can take uh, yoga trainings there's so many people you can take yoga trainings with and I really wanted to study with someone who was both a practitioner and a scholar and I was very fortunate that at that time I ran back into Dr. Christopher Chapel, who I had studied in my undergraduate years with at Loyola Marymount University. I had studied Hinduism and Jainism and Buddhism with Dr. Chapel. And so during grad school, I decided to enter into a two-year teacher training with Dr. Christopher Chapel at his Hill Street Yoga and Meditation Center, 
where with 10 other folks, every week we met and we studied and practiced Sankhya yoga philosophy. Uh, during this time, I also uh, had the great opportunity to travel to India. Uh, and while in India, I ran into a group called the Surfing Yogis. And so there was this ongoing interconnection between surfing mm. and yoga and practice um, that continued to go on. I also spent some time living in Hawaii during that training um, where I also continued to surf, entered surfing competitions, continued to really profoundly feel connected and um, eventually really wanting uh, not only to experience the bliss, but also going back again to Bron Taylor's work, there's an ethical response that I think emerges from this that when you see really the true state of the environment and the environmental catastrophe that we're currently in, you want to do something uh, that to respond effectively and to help others respond effectively. And so it was at that time when I was in Hawaii that I decided that I would go full time into a PhD program to study yoga as well as yoga and the relationship between yoga and ecology in order to be able to eventually teach this to students and continue to practice it myself. And it was entering into that PhD program that I studied with anthropologists and an anthropologist who studies the Sai Baba community, Dr. Smriti Srinivas. And through studying with her, uh, completed a PhD thesis and eventually, as time and luck would have it, an opening in the yoga studies program at Loyola Marymount University opened up, which I applied for, and that's where I'm currently teaching. So I made a full transition, I would say now, from that moment of, of, uh, of wanting something more to now being able to teach and share this yoga and this yoga and ecology with the students at Loyola Marymount. What a beautiful transition, Chris. It's, uh, you know, coming from that moment of personal place, whether it's coming from a surfing movement or doing yoga and together and teaching it to how we can change the society around that, you moved to a completely new life path. Yeah, absolutely. And it, 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 was, a, it was a long journey um, to go through all that training. But I think given the current circumstances that we're under, um, environmentally speaking, the pollution of air, earth, water all over the world, um, especially, you know, in my, my travels to India, that was particularly impactful seeing really the pollution that, that people have to deal with there. Um, it made me realize how really interconnected the entire world is, as well as my own implications in these, in these economic structures that are um, actively producing this, this very sort of toxic, polluted world that we live in. And so I think now, um, having made that full transition into this space of yoga, um, what's left to do and what I see myself as, as doing now is sort of carrying forward some of the foundational teachings uh, of the various yoga traditions from Buddhism, Jainism, and from Hinduism into, um, into the educational sphere so that we can train yoga teachers to train other yoga teachers about all of these really profound ways of of being in the world in a sustainable way. Mm. And why you're here? Human life really, and especially through the lens of the yoga tradition, um, tells us and tells me that we are here to experience something um, both within and beyond ourselves. And yoga helps you to come to that level. So, yeah, this is an interesting thing about yoga 
yoga, there's so many kinds of yoga. Um, and maybe saying a little bit about what I mean by yoga might be helpful. Yeah, and, and, and maybe before, what is yoga? Yeah, so again, it's many things. There are so many yogas. Uh, the word yoga first appears um, in, in, in textual evidence all the way back in the Vedas, in the Rig Veda. And there it doesn't refer necessarily to some sort of embodied practice. It's referring to uh, its verbal, uh, the meaning of its verbal root, which means to unite or connect something. And it's talking about connecting or uniting uh, a, a horse or a, a cattle to, to a rig or some kind of chariot or something like that. But what we see eventually happen is that yoga begins to take on a meaning in the Vedas of, of going beyond this world and into something greater. Uh, this is then further developed in uh, texts that many of us have probably heard of called the Upanishads. And what essentially we have to understand, I think, at a very basic level to understand what yoga is, is that we have to we have to look at uh, uh, what is known as the tradition of Vedic sacrifice. Now, just before these texts, the Upanishads, there's something going on in the Indian or the, you know, the South Asian landscape where the, the, this, these Aryan tribes are making sacrifices using Sanskrit mantras and they're offering things into a fire. They're offering material substances to the gods through fire. So we've all had fires before. We've all put things in them. We know what happens. They burn and then they rise up into the heavens. They rise up above us and they disappear with the smoke. And so through the Vedic sacrifice, what we see happening is a concern for giving things to the fire, giving oblations to the fire, so they can be carried up to the heavens, up to the gods. And in return, the gods return a favor by providing the patron of the sacrifice with some sort of gift, a long life, uh, more cattle, more sons, more wealth, more power, all the things that uh, we all crave in everyday life in some way, shape, or form. It basically is a process undertaken to have the good life, okay? And so it's fundamental to understand this process because what happens later, sometime around the 8th century, so when I'm talking about the Vedic sacrifice, I'm talking about texts that are originating around 1200 BC uh, and which may have uh, had an oral tradition even before then. What we see happen is we move forward to the 8th century uh, BCE, sometime around then, is we see the emergence of these texts called the Upanishads. And the Upanishads begin to reflect uh, a change in concern, uh, for lack of a better word. And what happens here is there's, there's this desire to understand the true meaning of the sacrifice, something that is even more profound than just this ongoing offering to the gods in order to get something back so you can live a good life and then die when you're you know, 100 years old. And is it the true meaning of the ritual in, 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 in the sense of philosophical or intellectual understanding? That's right. So there's a deep desire to understand philosophically and, and kind of flesh out metaphysically what is the real meaning of this ritual, of this sacrifice that we're doing. And so the, what this basically boils down to is in the Upanishads is what is often referred to as the internalization of the sacrifice. The true meaning of the external ritual 
is not to continue to offer things to a fire to God so you can continue to live this life. Because if you do that, your desire never goes away. And as a result, you'll continue to be reborn into this world and into a world of suffering and unable to uh, leave, uh, leave that uh, constant thing of what we might call reincarnation. So what happens is the ritual is internalized. And oftentimes what, what someone would do is they would, uh, someone who performed the ritual would actually do a final ritual for themselves where they would breathe in the fire ritually, lighting it for the last time and symbolically breathe the fire into their body. They would give up most of their material possessions and then they would set off to the forest instead and they would perform internal sacrifice where they would through various yoga and ascetic practices generate austerities and heat within their body so that external fire of the sacrifice has been internalized to generate austerities why well another thing that's being fleshed out even before the upanishads but which comes to its full expression in the upanishads is the idea that underneath the sacrifice there's this sort of ground, this consciousness, this thing that comes to be referred to as Brahman, that is at undergirding and at the foundation of the sacrifice. And in order to reach that experience of that Brahman, or what we might call pure consciousness, one has to internalize the sacrifice, offering themselves up. And what happens through this process is one eventually realizes that one's own self what's referred to as the Atman in these traditions, is no different from one's higher self or, or from that higher pure consciousness, Brahman. And so through the internalization of the sacrifice, one not only connects to their higher self, they connect to that which supports the entire sacrifice, and through doing that, reaches a state where they will not be reborn again. And in that case, the body become an instrument for that. Absolutely. Uh, the body becomes the instrument through which that occurs, and the body is 100% necessary for this process, and it's also 100% necessary to eventually transcend that body. But it begins with the body in and through the body and through these embodied practices that one is able to offer themselves up uh, internally to reach that higher self and to unite with the ground of all being. Brahman. I can give one example from, uh, from one of the later Upanishads, the Maitri Upanishad. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this, in this, to make this a little bit more tangible, there's, there's, a, there's a king who's retired who goes out to perform these austerities, what's referred to as tapas, and to practice yoga. And the way he does it, and this is not a way that we would do it in a yoga studio today, is he's reaching up and he's staring at the sun with his arms raised. And he does this for a thousand days. As, as an offering of his, his essentially his lower self um, to something higher. And as a result of his practice and in exchange and as a reward for this, this embodied internal sacrifice, which produces a lot of heat within his body, an ascetic or a sage, an enlightened sage comes to him and shares with him a very profound teaching that is also quite well known in the yoga world, but which says that the, the lower self, our ego, this thing that's subject to reincarnation and karma and all, of these, uh, all this suffering, is not the same as this higher pure self that is unaffected by that action. 
And what this sage does to the king is he teaches him a six-fold yoga that is very much an embodied practice through which he can gain knowledge of the self. And then this, uh, you know, and then these type of yogas came into, into the world as different yogas. Is it correct or it's a totally different story? Yeah, and what, what's given here is uh, a, a very well-known six-fold or six-limbed yoga. We've heard of the eight-limbed yoga probably of Patanjali. A lot of people have heard of that, the eight-fold um, or the eight limbs of yoga. Here we have a six-fold one through which someone practices breath control. They withdraw their senses from the world. They go into meditation and concentration, and they sit quietly uh, and finally are absorbed in uh, samadhi, in meditative, which is a meditative absorption. It is that experience of uniting with that absolute. This, this system um, and, and the system in the process of this system, as we can see, it takes one from gross to subtle. This is the process that Dr. Christopher Chapel, who I took my yoga, yoga teacher training with, describes as subtleization. We're going from gross to subtle. The first thing that the king does in his, in his will to reach something higher is he sits out in the sun with his body suffering with his arms raised for a thousand days. Now, I've taken kundalini yoga classes in yoga studios today where you have to keep your arms raised for maybe 11 minutes. Um, I don't know if you've taken any of these classes or seen any of these classes, but we see things like this. Now, 11 minutes, your arms are burning. Imagine 1,000 days uh, keeping your arms up raised in the sun. Uh, your arms are burning. Your body's burning. Yeah. And, and Chris, going back to this six-fold yoga, it seems thorough and complete and inter you know interacting with various parts of being human but the yoga we see in the studios these days are mainly hatha yoga or the yoga body movements yoga what do you think about that and and how do we know about the all other different types of yoga yeah so what's interesting is the the yogas that we practice in the studio today uh, and i'm drawing here from the work of mark singleton and anya fox and some recent work is really a product of the Indian encounter with British colonial European physical culture in the beginning of the 20th century. And what I mean by that is the mm. postures that we're used to practicing postures in the yoga class. And usually that's about it. Maybe a little bit of pranayama, some breath control. But this process is something that is only really um, a piece of the full spectrum as I've just described. And so when we're in a yoga class, we're doing one piece of what later becomes an eight limbed system where asana or posture is one, one of eight practices classically understood to comprise what we might say is a holistic yoga practice, right? The other limbs of practice though, uh, that begin in, we see a lot of them in the six fold yoga and the Maitri Upanishad that I just described involve other things. And when we finally get to Patanjali's yoga around maybe the second to fifth century of the common era, we see that there's a much more uh, fully fleshed out yoga system that begins, first of all, with what are known as yama and niyama, which are ethical restraints and moral observances that try to purify our embodied relationship to the world, ask us to be less violent, ask us to take less, to consume less, 
ask us to be more honest and, and more in alignment with, with the rhythm of the cosmos and ask us to be more content. And so when we see the, we often find these things taught in yoga teacher trainings. And what it is, is we, what we eventually end up seeing is that in pre-modern India, according to these yoga systems, posture was only one part of a much grander practice uh, that involved ethical uh, restraints, a lot of breath practice, and a lot of meditation. And so essentially the, the postures, and I still practice postural yoga almost every day, are intended as a, prepara a preparatory ground for the body to be able to sit in meditation for extended periods of time. And so I think there's something really um, not necessarily wrong with how it's being practiced in the West right now, but really um, it's, it's helpful to see that it's not just about our body, but it's also about all of these other aspects of ourself, which are accessible through this much uh, more comprehensive system or set of systems that we see emerge uh, along with the Upanishads and after the Upanishads. And then these type of yoga is, uh, what are they called? All these different, different types of yoga. Right. And so we first see Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, uh, which I just described is sort of considered the classical system of yoga. It was considered classical and it became classical during the colonial period when Westerners really took a great fascination with this system. After, the, after this classical period, what we enter into are uh, a lot of other yogas that sometimes uh, are referred to as tantric yogas. They'll start to emerge. Um, we also see bhakti yoga, uh, which is a very devotional yoga, wherein one offers themselves up uh, to the divine. And For everything example, like ISKCON. Like ISKCON, yeah. So we see groups like ISKCON today, which is a good example of that, who are just very devoted to the divine in every aspect of what they do. Uh, related to this is a yoga called karma yoga. So I'm now I'm going into the yogas that are popular in the Bhagavad Gita, right? Mm -hmm. Karma yoga through which one, one can act and acts without any attachments to the outcome of their action. So they do their service in an, as an offering without any expectation of anything in return. And then there's also jnana yoga, which is the deep philosophical study of yoga um, that uh, we do, for example, at Loyola Marymount University in the Masters of Yoga program that I'm involved in there. Um, so there's all of these uh, different yoga systems that emerge, and the point of all, of all of them is to somehow overcome our lower sort of egotistical, um, material, uh, desiring self in promise of something higher, in promise of something greater. And, and you, in your research, mentioned that uh, you put a, spe a special emphasis on tight breath and sound in the yoga practices. Yes. Um, part of what happens in yoga, again, is this internalization uh, of, of, a, of a sacrifice of some sort, this building of heat in the body. Now, when I went into the field to look at yoga, and try to understand yoga when I was doing my, my, my ethnographic field work with yoga communities around the world, I looked at these three categories of practice to, to see, one, because nobody has really looked at them much before, but then also because I wanted to see uh, uh, what is the connection between these other practices and perhaps asana and the other things that we're doing. And as it turns out, um, some of the, the findings that I had in my research was that the diet itself a yogic diet properly undertaken 
is actually uh, when you look at yoga texts and you look at the way that yoga is practiced in these communities, it is an offering that you're putting into your body, your body as the sacrificial pit that will eventually be offered up to something higher. Now, anytime you go into a yoga community, anytime you go to practice yoga um, for an extended period of time somewhere in a community or an ashram or something like that, one of the first things that they tell you to do is change your diet. And for many people, and myself included, this is a very uncomfortable experience. By modifying the diet, you're preparing the ground for an internalized sacrifice. You're laying down the fuel that will burn so that you can take this to its, uh, its next logical step in this process of what I have been referring to as subtleization going from gross to subtle. So first, through diet, we purify our relationship to what we're eating. And in exchange, we purify our bodies and prepare ourselves to start generating this internal heat. Hmm. And then to breath. So the breath quiets the mind and the ego in this emotional storm. And we all know this whenever we take a deep breath, calms our mind. But then it also, according to the internal logic of these yoga systems, stimulates an internal fire. And actually, just like we would blow air into a fire in like a fireplace, it makes the fire bigger. Okay, so it's calming the mind, but at the same time, it's making the fire a little bit bigger. And what this fire does with the breath is it's carrying that offering, that internalized, ritualized offering up to the internal absolute, to that Brahman, to whatever you want to call it, that pure consciousness. Through the breath, we're making an offering to something greater than ourselves. Wow. So through diet, we purified our body. Through breath, we calmed our mind and we give fuel to the internal fire. That's right. And then to the sound? And then to the sound. So sound is another interesting category in yoga practice. And most of us have probably heard of mantras before. Hmm. Mantra uh, has many meanings, but one of the popular meanings is that it comes from the verbal root man, which means to think. We also get the word manas, which means mind from that same verbal root. And tra means a protector or an instrument. And so a mantra is a protector of the mind. It's a mental instrument. And the point of mantra or sound, sacred sound in general, very generally speaking in uh, contemporary yoga traditions, as well as in some of the pre-modern texts, is to take that mind. So your mind is going crazy. You're controlling it with your breath because you're on this special diet. But when you're sitting in meditation and you need to calm that mind and pacify that mind uh, to experience the stillness required for, to have the yoga experience, this sound uh, which can either be external or internal, continues to quiet the mind. And more importantly, it carries the mind into space. Now, in yoga traditions, sound is connected with space. And we can think about this, that we know that sound, when it reaches our ears, it travels through space. Space, the emptiness, when we look up into the universe at night and experience awe, is associated with the absolute, with that Brahman, with pure consciousness. And so through the mantra, through the sound itself, we are elevated further with this internalized sacrifice. We've gone all the way from purifying our body through breathing and stoking that fire and carrying that sacrifice up to something greater into that space that permeates everything and which is that pure consciousness. Mm. So beautiful. 
And, you know, right now, especially in the West, we are facing a lot of problem regarding the mental health. Uh, there's a depression is on the rise. The number of suicides we are having is unbelievable, especially as our physical well-being is getting better. Do you think yoga and yoga mainly in the form of a psychology can be helpful? Uh, yoga was never, never referred to itself as a psychology per se. And I think it's important to understand what it means when we say yoga psychology, because it's very different from um, the Western tradition of psychology, very generally speaking. That is to say, Western psychology is focused on the individual and fixing the individual, uh, maybe the individual in relation to other people. But the yogic understanding of the mind is interested in doing something, I think, uh, much more than that. The yogic, what we might call yoga psychology, is interested in helping us get beyond the egotistical individual sense of mind that relates to humans. And it's attempting to help us relate to not just other humans, but to everything around us, every little speck of earth, drop of water, uh, breath of air, the entire cosmos. And in doing so, um, like Western psychology, it, it attempts to remove suffering, but it's a much more existential suffering, deeper suffering, much more profound um, experience of removing suffering that goes beyond even just um, the individual and fixing the individual themselves. It's a psychology that puts the mind in relationship to the entire cosmos uh, in an attempt to uh, an attempt to alleviate a, a much deeper sense of suffering. So this is a, a some part of psychology which is very relational, where the relation is not with only with other people, but it's with the entire cosmos. Yeah, I think that's one of the fundamental distinctions. I mean, we we do have wonderful. I'm speaking very generally. We do have wonderful uh, new things like eco psychology, where people are taught to relate to other things around them in the world um, and not just other humans. But I think, yes, what distinguishes a yoga psychology very generally from a Western approach to psychology is the need to find one's relationship to the entire cosmos, starting from the earth that is right outside your apartment, all the way up to staring up into the beautiful expanse of space that is above you. Hmm. Wow. And can people do it by living a normal life or whatever we de define as a normal or a standard life, just being a part of this world? Yeah, so uh, what I would say is that change to these types of things don't have to happen immediately and they don't necessarily have to be big. They can happen with individual people affecting together great change all over the world just simply by pulling together and, and exploring and adopting systematically these different um, practices and, and ways of understanding um, where they are at right now without having to jump out, jump off the train. Now, I, my own experience has been that I did it very slowly. Um, I worked my way out of accounting, but we need accountants in the world, right? We need somebody to do the accounting for us. Um, we need lawyers, we need doctors. But how one does that job and why one does that job is something that can be explored through yoga. Uh, yoga can give a, a deeper understanding of what industry one's working in, why they're working in that industry. Might there be better industries one could start or, 
or be in. Um, and yoga can certainly uh, get people to, to move in those kinds of directions. Uh, I know I'm thinking of people that I know who have gone to working in renewable energy uh, as opposed to fossil fuel industry uh, because of their interaction and study with yoga and the, the profound experiences they've had. Um, so there's so many different ways that this can happen. You don't need to leave where you're at necessarily right now, but I think, and I can almost guarantee and say that if someone takes these practices uh, seriously and practices them regularly, um, they will probably come to a point where they no longer want to be in those industries. Well, and you know, it's like, it's a new, te- new level of reunion, which we might require in, in the 21st century is connecting to something bigger and operating and, or, or just looking at the bigger picture of things, why we are doing what we are doing. Absolutely. I mean, our, our, our individual human lives are so short, but it's also such uh, an opportunity to be on this planet, especially at such a critical, uh, especially environmental and social justice oriented time that uh, we're living in. And really, it, the, 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 this is the time. And I think that uh, as someone who, who teaches yoga, practices yoga, and who um, continues to be worried about the environment and uh, environmental and ecological damage, that yoga can be the, uh, one of the uh, ways to, um, to, to remedy a lot of these problems through, through our own embodied practice. Mm. Yeah, Chris, my last question to you then is, uh, what's your path forward? So I think much of it will be a, a continuation of, of, of where I've been going. Um, I started this as, as sort of a, you know, California surfer who just uh, could see clearly that on the one hand, I was having a great blissful time. Uh, surfing in the ocean, but that there's this great environmental challenge ahead of us. And so for me, I, 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 I will continue to teach, uh, I will continue to write, and I will continue to talk about uh, the, the, the very broad category of yoga and ecology, because I would like to show others uh, through the philosophy and through the contemporary practice, just how promising uh, this all is. And so I'm currently um, working on a book project in that regard. And I'm also currently, again, teaching at Loyola Marymount University in the Master of Arts of Yoga Studies program, and uh, where we study and explore these topics on a daily basis. And so I'll continue to, to keep moving this forward uh, with some hope that uh, to, ins- to inspire others to do the same. You know, or finding your bliss through surfing and taking it to the completely different level with the yoga studies, and now becoming a professor of yoga, it's a long journey you have taken and it, it feels that you're living a life where you have found your meaning and purpose towards where you are going. Certainly. Thank you for having me, Deepak. Thank you, Chris, and such a pleasure. Guruji said, take the understanding of the East and the knowledge of the West and then seek. A moment of reconnection while surfing directed Chris' life on a new search which took him into the unknown path of Eastern tradition of yoga. Through yoga, coming from Sanskrit word yuj meaning to join, Chris not only joined the Eastern understanding with Western knowledge, 
but also his life with a new meaning just like a true yogi a continuous internal sacrifice